Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, January 2nd, 2022, and this is show number 869. Well, this week we've got a great show thanks to a couple of wonderful listeners. First up, we're going to hear from William Reveal, who has never sent in a contribution before, but he has just popped up out of nowhere and he's fantastic. It's a little bit nerdy, but his delivery is just wonderful, and I think you'll get a kick out of it. We're also going to hear from the venerable Frank Petrie in an episode he calls Let's Get Small. I've also got an interview with my friend Ron Birch, and uh, I might even sneak in two little bits of my own. Well, this week, actually today, I had the great pleasure of being on Barbu Shot's 100th episode of Let's Talk Apple. That's a monthly podcast all about Apple news. You know, 100 consecutive months of uninterrupted delivery of high-level Apple news is an extraordinary achievement, and I was really delighted to be part of it. I derailed Bart's show for a few minutes at the beginning so that I could ask him whether his original vision has been realized and whether the show has evolved and how. Bart humored me, but wanted to get on with the show eventually, because if he didn't actually deliver the month's news, then he would technically break his 100 consecutive news show streak. You can find this wonderful 100th episode of Let's Talk Apple at lets-talk.ie. And of course, you can find it in your podcatcher of choice. Please join me in congratulating Bart on a job well done. Now, as promised, let's hear from William Reveal. Hi, Allison and fellow castaways. Longtime listener to the Podfeet family of podcasts and even longer time developer. As is typical of me, I have been in stealth mode, supporting you through your product links. I thought I might throw in my two cents regarding a handy tool for coding, an IDE called PHP Storm by JetBrains. An IDE is an integrated development environment and can be real handy. I had a problem caused by another problem. My web server out in the cloud was getting old, cranky, and needing to be retired, like me. So I spun up a brand new server without all the cruft. I decided to simplify my life by just using version 8 of PHP instead of running three different versions, which were 5, 7, and 8. That sounds great and all, but PHP 8 does break older code. One of my sites is based on my own library of PHP code, which can be traced all the way back to code I wrote in PHP version 3. Now, it went through rewrites for each successive version, including a brief dalliance with the never-released version 6. So yeah, the PHP code has a lot of cruft in it. And that's the problem. Code that was written correctly in version 5 and acceptable in version 7 suddenly didn't work at all in PHP 8. Looking at the programs running on my Mac right now, Sets bbedit, which is always running, CodeKit for SAS, SourceTree for Git, iTerm for command line, where I use Vi, well, Vim, Git, SAS, ESLint, Composer, PHP, shell scripts, etc., etc., ad nauseum. The crazy part, I don't need any of them running technically, not when I have an IDE. After a long search several years ago, I settled on PHP Storm by JetBrains. It's an integrated development environment, meaning it incorporates all the functionality of all those tools I mentioned, adds a bunch more capabilities, and provides a single window where I can do it all. 
It is an integration tool, meaning certain capabilities do need to be installed separately on your Mac through tools like Xcode, Homebrew, or MAMP to get the full experience. But PHP Storm does provide most of the tools that you need on a daily basis. Now I needed to fix my code to get my website back up, so I did the smart thing. I started the code, tearing my hair out, not knowing where to start or why it didn't work, and started screaming. <laughs> no, I opened my code up in PHP Storm. I changed a couple settings, telling it that I was now using PHP 8 and ES6 instead of PHP 7.4 and ES4, which I was using earlier. I then ran an inspection on the entire project, which tells PHP Storm to run linters on the HTML, SAS, JavaScript, and PHP code I have. Ouch. I had 20-plus PHP code errors that broke the website caused by backward, incompatible changes in PHP 8. Yes, I should have been listening to the warnings regarding depreciated code. I had also 50 or so warnings which don't stop the website from working, but could very well be bugs or potential bugs. So, I needed to fix things. I also had hundreds of soft warnings that could be as simple as an unused but declared variable or a typo. But that's a lot of work if I had to make each and every one of those changes by hand. Hundreds and hundreds it felt like. However, PHP Storm offers to fix a majority of them for me automatically. I don't let the IDE just take control, making all the changes and all the files all at once. I've had bad experiences with that. For certain warnings, I did let it change all the files that had potential problems. For example, for one soft warning, I let it go to town, changing 40 plus files in less than a minute. It would have taken me hours to fix them by hand. But for most errors, I have to look at each file individually. That's just who I am. I run the inspection again on each file, and then, if I'm sure it's okay, I let PHP Storm make the changes it recommends on that file. In only a few instances did I actually have to do some typing. Even with my hands-on approach, what could have taken weeks to fix took only hours. Well, not quite. It sounds as if PHP Storm is just a giant linter, but really... That is just one of the many features. It just happened to be the thing that solved my problem. First and foremost, PHP Storm is a smart PHP, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript code editor. PHP Storm has support for remote deployment, database testing tools, Docker Composer, and more. It even has a live edit feature that allows you to see in a web browser instantly any changes you make in your code. So while it is named PHP Storm, it really is a complete storm of web development tools. HTML5, CSS, SAS, LESS, ECMAScript, CoffeeScript, and more. It supports JSDoc and JavaScript debugging and unit testing. Database support includes the ability to connect to your database server for testing SQL in many different SQL flavors. It supports many popular version control systems, including Git and GitHub. It supports many of the common frameworks for PHP, JavaScript, and CSS. The code editor makes writing new code or changing old a snap. It does amazing things to help you write test, and debug the best PHP code you can write, including writing good documentation via support for PHP Doc, DocBlocks. It even has third-party plugin support that extends its capabilities. 
It is a good thing PHP Storm is more than just a linter. Remember that one instance where I let PHP Storm make a change to multiple files all at one time? There was one little suggestion for a change regarding type hinting that was new to PHP 8. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. And just let PHP Storm storm through the changes on my whole project. 40 pages worth, remember? It shouldn't break things. It was only after making sure that the inspector showed no errors anywhere did I actually start testing. It sounds right, but it was a big mistake. I should have fixed the major errors that were breaking the website first, did some testing, made sure everything was working right, then gone back to the soft errors. Although the linters did not show any errors, that one type hinting change broke gobs of my code due to old cruft that doesn't present as errors, but are due to programming logic mistakes. I could have just used Git to roll back all the changes and start over, might have been the right thing, but I decided to make this a learning experience and a chance to remove some of the cruft along the way. PHP Storm has really nice built-in debugging tools, including the ability to trace through the code step-by-step step and see exactly where the problem exists. It uses a debugging tool built into PHP called xDebug. You have to enable it and configure it on your web server. Not always easy, but PHP Storm's excellent documentation can help one get it all set up. Once done, you can step line by line through the code right there in PHP, even jumping from file to file until the problem presents itself so you can quickly fix the code issues right there in the file and get on with it. So, from start to finish of the development process, PHP Storm can be your one ring to rule them all. PHP Storm is available for Macintosh, Windows, and Linux. PHP Storm is a subscription model program, and for some, not cheap. It has both a monthly and an annual subscription plan. The annual plan reduces the price the longer you maintain it. Right now, for an individual, it is $89 for the first year, the second year is less, and the third year onwards is even less. At this time, $53 a year which is a significant savings over the monthly subscription price. They do have special offers, including it being free for verified university students and teachers. The annual plans, or at least 12 months of the monthly plan, even include a perpetual fallback license that allows you to use a specific version of the software without an active subscription for it. The time it saves me often results in huge savings for both me and my clients. JetBrains is constantly updating PHP Storm, coming out with new versions with new capabilities at a fast pace. The subscription price is well worth it. Even mostly retired me finds this one indispensable tool that I just can't give up. Well, thank you so much for that, William. I can't believe this is your first recording for us. That was fantastic. I really uh, I really enjoyed that and learned a lot. I've got to go check that out. I did go to the JetBrains website, and there are 
so nerdy. I love it. The, uh, you know, the annoying little pop-up that all the websites have now that say, hey, we use cookies. It was done all in a terminal style. It was just, it was just fantastic. It's just, it's command line. So that's definitely our kind of people. Thanks again, William. And uh, it's been fun chatting it up with you now in the, uh, in our Slack community at podfeed.com slash Slack. So if you want to hear more from William, check us out over there. Recently, our daughter Lindsay was visiting, and when she heated her coffee in the microwave, she put it in the center of the rotating plate. I pointed out to her that it would heat more if it was on the edge of the plate, as it would pass in and out of the field of radiation. Steve backed me up on this point, and she was very happy that we schooled her. Fast forward to a few weeks later when I put a plate off-center in the microwave with a tortilla and some cheese on it, and I cooked it for 30 seconds. When I opened the microwave, the cheese that was over the center of the rotating plate was fully melted, but the cheese near the edge was not. Could Steve and I possibly be wrong? Could the center provide more heating? Obviously, we could have gone to the internets to look up the answer, but what kind of fun would that be? And that's not what two engineers do. With Christmas presents to wrap, decorations to put up, meal planning for days of guests coming, packing planning for a trip to see the family, and two podcasts to create to publish early, we set all that aside to do an experiment. We started with two identical coffee mugs, each filled with exactly one cup of tepid water. While one of the scientists suggested that the other scientist had made the meniscus of the water a few molecules higher in one mug versus the other, the measuring scientist suggested that this margin of error would not be significant. Next, we measured the temperature of the water in each mug with our handy-dandy Craftsman laser thermometer, making every effort to set the angle approximately the same into the mug. In the initial temperature measurement, the two mugs of water were off by several degrees. We theorized that the difference in temperature was caused by the running water changing temperature as it came out of the tap. We decided to do a stability test and left the mugs on the granite counter for one hour and 10 minutes. After stabilization, the two mugs were at 72.1 degrees Fahrenheit each. The next step was to engage in a healthy dialogue on when to measure the temperature of the heated mug. On the one hand, it would be best if the temperature could be measured whilst the mug in question was still in the microwave, allowing for as little heat dissipation as possible. One scientist pointed out that she was too short to reliably hold the laser thermometer at an appropriate angle to measure the water inside the mug and still be able to read the display on the thermometer. The second scientist, let's call him the assistant scientist really, pointed out his concerns that the granite would begin sucking heat out of the mug at a rapid rate and thus sully our results. In the end, it was decided that the heat dissipation would be similar for the two samples as long as the temperature was taken as rapidly as possible upon removal of the mugs from the microwave. We labeled the two mugs appropriately as edge and center. We placed one mug at the edge of the rotating plate, set it to cook on high for one minute, and then immediately measured its temperature. We repeated the experiment with the center mug. The final results? The center-placed mug heated to 2.6 degrees Fahrenheit higher than the edge-placed mug. Now, to give you the exact numbers, the edge uh, mug was 134.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Center was 137.3 degrees Fahrenheit. So there you have it. The center heats faster in our microwave than the edge. As scientists, we feel obligated to point out that a sample set of one is not a good proof of concept, so if you would like to repeat our experiment and report back on your microwave, that would be swell. In the meantime, we're willing to admit that we were wrong all these years and our biochemist daughter is smarter than us. 
Let's Get Small by Frank Petrie. Recently, I purchased some new Apple gear. This was born of a concept from over a year ago. I wanted to see if I could create a quality-looking video with entry-level hardware. I kicked off this experiment with the iPhone SE 2020. It had only one lens, but it had a sizable amount of the guts of that year's flagship iPhones. My concept could be accomplished with the addition of several key accessories. First, I replaced Apple's camera app with Filmic Pro, a video app which would give granular control of my settings, such as focus, swipe balance, f-stop, and so on. I could further improve the image with a collection of Sandmark lenses and filters. The camera would be mounted to a previously purchased Osmo gimbal, allowing for impressive stabilization when combined with Apple's optical image stabilization. And, as an unexpected bonus, I'm bound to a power chair. Combined with the aforementioned gimbal, plus Apple's image stabilization, this would make for buttery smooth dolly shots. As for the files, the iPhone 13 mini only provided 128 GB of storage. But years earlier, I had purchased a SanDisk iExpand 128 GB flash drive. Combined with my new iPad 6's 256 GB of storage, that's a total of a bit under 400 GB altogether. Well, actually, if you include the flotsam already on board, it's more like 300 GB. And as I had purchased the iPad mini with 256 GB of storage, I could unload what I had shot and begin filming anew. And if I wanted a little more breathing room, I could always pick up a portable SSD for more storage, and I could repurpose that later in my desktop workflow. I found some embarrassingly inexpensive LED lights on Amazon that fulfilled my needs. When used with reflectors like inexpensive white foam core and other money-saving tricks I learned in college, I could create a usable lighting rig if I framed my shots properly. My second purchase was the aforementioned iPad Mini 6 with 256 gigabytes of storage. I traded in my iPad Air so I could purchase the 256 gigabyte model. Not only would this allow me to dump footage off the camera onto the iPad Mini 6, I would be able to view it on a reasonable size screen and possibly even perform some rough cuts of scenes using LumaFusion. After using the iPad Air for nearly a year, having it sit in a stand next to my iMac, it seemed a cheesy second monitor. Granted, the size of the iPad Mini will be limiting as to use cases with my iMac, but again, I came across a few videos that had some innovative ideas as to the role it could play in my desktop workflow. One tech used it to keep his calendar open on it all day. Now he wouldn't have to repeatedly launch the calendar app on his desktop. A simple quick glance and he would know his schedule. Another tech used it to park apps and files on it for whatever project he was currently working on. All he had to do was click on the needed app or file and drag it onto his desktop. No launching Spotlight, no launching Alfred. 
With the release of the iPhone 13 mini and Apple's advances in computational video, I reckon I can pull it off, and I'm anxious to see the third iteration of cinematic mode. So now you know my plans, but let's get to the thrust of this article. Within several weeks of purchasing my toys, I noticed that several well-known YouTubers such as Noah Herman, Daily Tech, and a handful of others were pronouncing that they were doing the same downsizing of their mobile devices for various other reasons. There were the usual motives such as consumption and reading. But I also watched various videos where they found that they could create solid content on these diminutive devices. One person went so far as to show you how to record an audio podcast, recommending what microphone and software would help you produce a quality-sounding episode. I saw various musicians using it for creating musical content when the muse struck them as they were out and about. Beat makers seemed particularly enamored with it, especially the size and form factor. The most interesting concept I heard was it was great for taking notes in a face-to-face -face business meeting. The reason? It wasn't as intrusive as it was approximately the same size as a paper notepad. If the person was taking notes on a larger iPad, the argument was it would create a psychological wall between them and their counterpart. Very compelling. Personally, I have watched movies and TV shows on it while using my AirPod Pros. When a film or show calls for a more intimate experience, then I turn off my 55-inch TV and I reach for the Mini. As an aside, the darndest thing is it got me to watch TikTok. I had tried watching TikTok before on my iPhone, but never felt engaged. But the iPad Mini turns out to be the perfect size to draw me in with its larger picture and better sound. In the end, I'm confident I can pull this off. Now to write a banger of a script. Oh man, Frank, you're, you're teasing us. I thought for sure there would be a link to this amazing video that you had created with, uh, with your small devices now. Oh, well, I guess we'll just have to wait for those banger scripts to get finished and then get to, uh, and then get to see your masterpieces. I sure hope you'll share when you've got them, uh, got something to show us. Dumb. 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 Dumb questions. Dumb questions. Dumb questions. How do I? What is? How come I always have to? It's time for Dumb Question Corner. Well, John Ormsby, also known as NASA Nut in the live chat room and in our Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack, sent in our dumb question for this week. I thought the answer to his question would be easy, but we ended up going back and forth at least a half dozen times until I figured out where the confusion was and we had a meeting of the minds. It occurred to me that there might be others with the same confusion, so I'd like to walk through our process of discovery. Here is his initial question. In a recent show, you and Bart discussed how some photographers had put together a dynamic set of desktops for Monterey, and Bart said that the link would be in the show notes. Could you please tell me which show note that link is in? I looked in that NoSilicast episode, 862, but I could not find it. I've had this problem in the past as well when I wanted to track down something that is supposed to be in the show notes, but I could never find it. Your help would be appreciated. 
Well, I was initially confused by John's question because he seems to already have the answer. The show notes to which we referred are the ones from Nosilicast episode number 862. Since I didn't understand his fundamental question, I suggested, why don't you search podfeed.com? And in fact, the dynamic desktops he was looking for come up as the second result. But he still wanted to understand the show notes and how they work, since we've referred to them so often. In his next email, I got a little more clarification on where we weren't speaking the same language. He wrote, I had assumed that while I was listening to a Nosilicast episode and someone says link in the show notes, I would expect to go to the show notes for that episode and see a link to whatever item was being discussed, i.e. not the whole story, just something like softwarewehaddiscussed.com, vendorweinterviewed.com, or source of interesting story we discussed.com. I often can remember the episode that something is discussed, but not necessarily within what section of the podcast. I did not realize that while I consider security bits, dumb questions, tiny tips, etc. as part of the NoSilicast, it would appear that you consider them, at least security bits, as a separate podcast, so the mentioned links are not in the NoSilicast show notes, but in a separate security bits show note. While it still took us several emails back and forth, this one description really highlights an expectation perhaps many of you have and a reality that is quite different. I think I have to go down, back down memory lane a, quite a ways to explain how the show notes got the way they are. In the earliest days of the NoSilicast, I wrote bullet points for podfeet.com as an outline of what I wanted to say on the show. This seems like a great idea, and it works for many people, but it doesn't work for me. You see, I think in whole paragraphs. I don't think in bullet points. In order to create a bullet point outline, I would write out everything I wanted to say, and then I'd go back through it and change all of the language to be short enough to fit in a bullet and remove, you know, verbs and things. I realized after a while that I was adding work to my life while actually removing value. If I simply wrote out what I wanted to say, then there would be a useful blog post to go along with the show. As time went on, I started to have more and more to say, and the blog post for the podcast episode was getting longer and longer. I remember going to a talk about WordPress at uh, Blog World Expo one year, and I asked a question about the tool, but I prefaced my question with, I write a 5,000-word blog post each week, and before I could ask my question, the instructor simply said, why? I didn't have a really good answer. Sometime in 2015, I decided it was time to make a change. I asked the audience whether it would be acceptable to them if I made every subject a standalone blog post. There was some little bit of a revolt at the change. Well, one person, and I want to say it was Sandy, but I could be misremembering, suggested that as long as there was still a blog post for the NoSilicast that had links to every associated article, that everyone would be happy. For the last nearly seven years, that's how it has worked. The NoSilicast episode post has links to every article included in the show. What John was looking for was a simple list of links to every piece of software, hardware, and anything else with a link all piled up in the NoSilicast post. I think that was a reasonable expectation, and in fact, it's exactly how the Mac Geek app does it. Every subject, if it mentions a product or another article, is listed with its associated links. But the Mac Geek app subjects aren't written as blog posts. They're extemporaneous, so there's no associated content. It works great for that show, but it wouldn't make any sense for mine. I remember talking to another podcaster many years ago about how I do blog posts for every article, and he said the funniest thing. He asked me, aren't you worried they'll read instead of listening? Without missing a beat, I said, gosh, you're right. That would be terrible if they got the content they wanted to consume it. 
Anyway, John did explain that this second layer of abstraction from the NoSilicast post down to the blog post does require him to remember which segment the thing he was looking for was in. While adding to John's cognitive load is regrettable, that might be where the search comes into play. To be honest, that's how I find things on my site. At one point in the discussion, I decided to create a diagram for John to explain how it all works. I made four boxes on the left representing four blog posts. And inside each post, I put in three imaginary links. Then I connected those four blog posts to one NoSilicast episode post, inside of which I put links to the four blog posts. Now, there's two more pieces to this puzzle, and one of them turned out to be an eye-opener for John, so maybe it will be for you as well. After I create the post for the NoSilicast, with the links to the blog posts, I run a keyboard maestro macro that copies just the titles of those blog posts and their links, and it pastes them into the application feeder that I use to create the podcast feed. That feed is also called an RSS file. Now, the reason you and John care about that particular file is that's what puts all of the links into the show notes in your podcatcher. So if you're using Apple Podcasts or using Overcast or Downcast or Pocket Cast, there, there are show notes in your podcatcher. When you're listening to the show, you can access the list of blog posts and tapping on any one of them will take you to the blog post with all of the associated links. This is when a light bulb went off for John. He said that it had never occurred to him to look in his podcatcher for any of this. He explained that 99 times out of 100, he's doing something like driving, mowing the lawn, or walking the dog, so pulling out his phone and tapping into the podcatcher app wouldn't be practical. I don't know if any of the rest of you have ever wondered about these mysterious show notes, but I had fun chatting with John about it, and even if only one other person didn't understand how my show notes work and why, it might be valuable to talk about it here. I also thought it might be fun for you to know the genesis of the show and the notes, if you haven't been on board, for all 16 going on 17 years of the podcast. Our hero of the week is William Osterheld. This fine gentleman went to podfeet.com slash Patreon and tailored his pledge to the exact amount per month that he felt was right for him and his family and showed his appreciation for what he learns from us here at the Podfeet Podcast. I'd also like to thank April Mendez, John Tiftigian, Wayne Karaki, and Sian Rollins for their three years of support. All of these people find value, and they give value back, and for that, I thank them. So you guys have all heard from my buddy Ron many times before, but probably not for a while. Uh, our buddy Ron is just our buddy Ron. <laughs> How you doing in this? How you doing today, Ron? Doing great, thanks. All right. Uh, well, last week Ron came over. Ron comes over every week, and last week Ron came over and he said, "I have a new toy." And of course, you know, if you tell me you got a new toy, your punishment is that you will now have to do a review for me. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, tell tell the audience what it is you're going to tell us about today. What is it called? It's called the Aura Ring. It's a wearable. And it's a health monitoring device. But it's a ring. It's not a watch. It's not an it earring. It is liter- it's a, a literally ring. a ring like you would wear on your finger. Okay. All right. Well, we'd like to start with a problem to be solved. What was the problem you wanted to solve with this? Or was it just, this is cool, which is also a problem to be solved? Uh, no, I actually had a problem this time, although uh, cool does rank pretty high on my list. <laughs> um, in this case, I uh, I have an Apple Watch. Uh the uh, version six, and it does everything I need it to do. However, uh, it wasn't comfortable to wear at night to do uh, sleep monitoring. Ah, and I had not found um, an alternative that was any 
easier to deal with. And so I was on the lookout for something that would be uh, less obtrusive and would give me some more data on how well I'm sleeping. So I did a post a while back called Sleep Tracking is Stupid, which uh, the w- most wonderful Jill from the Northwoods came back with a review called Sleep Tracking is Not Stupid, uh, which I loved. Um, the, the thing I always wonder about sleep tracking is why? What, wh- how, are you, how is sleep tracking going to solve a problem for you? What, do, what are you hoping to do with it? Um, well, uh, I've noticed that uh, over time I probably have not felt as refreshed when I got up in the morning, and uh, in some cases I've been waking up several times in the middle of the night. Um, I felt restless sometimes when I woke up, and I was curious um, whether this was a pattern or whether uh, it was actually affecting my sleep or whether I'm just imagining it, <laughs> and I wanted just a little more data um, in order to, to maybe correlate to, you know, am I eating later? Am I exercising more? Uh, is there something I can do to change my behavior that will improve my sleep? So I, I guess what I learned from talking, listening to Jill was that in order to uh, change something, you have to be able to measure it. I, my, my concern is you still have to be able to measure the input, right? You got to figure out what is it you did on each day as a result of that. But like you made a really good statement there. You said looking for a pattern. So that was part of what Jill saw was she said every day or every night at 2.13 a.m. I was waking up. Well, what the heck is going off at 2.13 a.m.? So she set her alarm for 2 a.m. and found out it was like the, I don't know, the the water softener or something was going <laughs> off. It's like, well, I could change that time for that. So looking for patterns then can drag you back or you can go back and try to find the the root cause, right? Right. And, and um, you know, one of the things that I was – uh, noticing uh, later actually was that uh, it also the the application that goes with it allows you to put tags and the mm-hmm. tags are notes basically that allow you to log certain things did i have alcohol that night did well, i so you'd always have that tag well yeah that, that tag yeah. is like just no, it's obvious know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but if there are other things that happen maybe that you remember that and and it it helps you uh you know, continue to log the data. And then hopefully as you go back through it, you know, every week or two, um, you might, you know, again, see a pattern, see something that stands out. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, let, so let's get back to the ring. Um, this is a beautiful ring. I mean, Ron, Ron walked in with it. I'm like, that is, that is a gorgeous piece of jewelry. It really does look nice. Um, talk about the different styles that the uh, Aura ring comes in. So um, the Aura Ring, uh, first of all, it's manufactured by a company in Finland that all they do is wearables. They've been around for about seven years. This is the third generation of Ring. Um, a friend of mine was actually the one who um, put me onto it. She had the second generation. Okay. Uh, the third generation is significantly different. And one of the biggest differences is now it is titanium. It used Ooh. to be a composite, like a okay. plastic. Oh. And so now... It, so it's still light like a composite would be, but it's more durable exactly. and looks cooler. And and one of the complaints, I guess, of the, of the previous version was that it wasn't as durable. But this titanium ring, I don't think you're going to have a problem with that. Um, it comes in four styles. So there are silver and black, which cost $299. Or you can go for what they call stealth, uh, which is a little like a darker silver or gold. 
which I believe is actually gold plating. And so that would be three ninety nine. Both of those are three ninety nine. <coughs> now, <coughs> stealth sure sounds like you, but you, but you went for which one? Silver, silver. or black? Okay. Uh, okay. I'm kind of partial to silver, and um, it it you know it looks very nice. Um, I'm not a jewelry wearer, I will say, but uh, I have no problem wearing this ring. Yeah, you know, so I put it on and it was really comfortable. It looks it looks a little bulky. I mean, it's it's more of a manly ring, I would say, but uh it, you know, for a, a bigger hand, but it was really comfortable. Yeah, my one of my biggest uh concerns actually, like with with a watch or something where you wear it a lot, and in this case you'd like to wear it almost 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. um was the comfort ang- angle. So the very first thing uh well, first of all, when you order they send you a kit ahead of time with plastic rings so that you can get the fit just oh, right. Oh, that's a really good idea. And so I, I spent quite a bit of time. It's like going to the optometrist, you know, better <laughs> or worse, better or worse. <laughs> but um, I finally found one and it, it's supposed to fit either on your index finger or they recommend um, your your uh, ring or I'm sorry, your index finger or your middle finger. So not the ring finger. No. Why? Do you know? I don't know. But huh. um so I chose my index finger, and when I received the ring uh, a couple of weeks afterwards, it fits just exactly like that, and it has been very comfortable despite the fact that it's got several sensors that are, you know, up against your skin. And that's especially important if you're looking for sleep tracking too. Exactly. Because wearing the watch, I mean, I, I'm, I don't know if I would be comfortable wearing the watch at night, even though I wear it all the time. I'm just like. I, I hit a certain point of the night and I'm like, get everything off of me. I just don't want anything. I just, just get rid of it. I don't want any exactly. jewelry. Uh, when I was working, it's like I, I'd wear earrings all day and never notice it <laughs> and rings. And, and as soon as I got home, I was just like, ah, get it off. <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually went to bed with the Apple Watch several times trying to make that work. And every time it, it bothered me. And so this does not. I've been wearing it about a week. And frankly, there are times I just completely forget I'm wearing it. Okay. All right. So it's a it's a smart device or a, a, a tracking device. Does it uh, connect over uh, Bluetooth or something to your phone? How's that work? Yeah. The way that they uh, have it set up is the ring itself has sensors, uh, Bluetooth, and a small battery. Uh, it has seven temperature sensors. They claim. Wow. Yeah. It has what they call a green LED, which is the heart rate sensor, and it has a 3D accelerometer. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so I they pack a gotta, lot. <laughs> it's got to be able to tell if you're flailing around in bed. Well, one of, the, of one of the things actually, uh, which they haven't finished all the back-end software, but one of the things that it's supposed to do really well eventually, and already does some of it, is it detects what kind of activity you're doing. So it already could tell when I took a nap. It just came in and said, by the way, I think you took a nap. Was that correct? And I said, <laughs> yes, it was. Oh, interesting. So it could, but you were just like sitting in a chair, right? Now, I like was in reclining. your easy chair, reclining. And so you I, weren't flat out in bed. No, I wasn't in bed, but I was absolutely napping. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so a good skill to have. As it yes. Means. So what it has is it has all of those. The ring comes with a charger, which is an inductive charger, like the Apple Watch. Um, and then uh, it has an app, which you Wait, download. So, an, so you just set the ring down? There's, yes. There's not a micro no, USB no. in the inside? There, there is not else. yet another annoying <laughs> connector. Um, and it charges very well. It charges in about two hours is oh, what, wow. what they say. I actually think it char- mine is charging faster than that. And then how did, did you just say how long <clears throat> that lasted? It lasts for a week. Oh, wow. Um, okay. That's a lot more practical for something that you wear exactly. all the time, all day. Yes. And so then it does have a Bluetooth connection to an app. Um, I'm using an iPhone 
uh, iPhone 12 Pro, uh, pulled it out of the App Store, put it on. Uh, you do an initial setup. The in- initial setup literally took five minutes, and I uh, had no problem with it. And after that, uh, it the app is talking to Aura, I guess, their servers that does a lot of the processing. Some of the processing, it looks like, is done on the phone, and the link is between uh, the ring and the app on your on your phone or your tablet. Okay. All right. Now, what about like showering with the ring? So that's the other thing that they tout is that it's supposed to be um, waterproof to 100 meters, which is 328 feet. Jeez. So next time we go to so. Hawaii to see the turtles, <laughs> we can do some free driving. I think I can go down to 30 feet. So uh, we, can, we can test it to that. But three. Well, I can go down to about 10. So, <laughs> so that's uh, waterproof. That's not water resistant. That's no. not splashing. That is, this thing is sealed. This is sealed. And it's because it doesn't have a micro USB connector. That's right? exactly right. It, it actually has no, no um, ports that I can tell. So that's another thing that um, I think was a very big um, feature for a lot of people because uh, I think especially. You know, if you're going swimming, which is a big activity, yeah, yeah, um, you don't want to have to remember to take it off in the shower, in a bath, whatever. Sure. Now, do you um, does it integrate in with like uh, uh, Apple Fitness or Google Fitness, whatever it has? Yeah, actually, right now, out of the box, it integrates with Apple Health, and you can give it permission to access certain information. Okay. Um, mainly the workouts, and the reason for that is because. Right now, they don't have the ability to, um, m- well, it's not in a feature that's active right now to uh, measure your heart rate when you're working out. And so right now, mm. you pull that information. They say that in the first quarter of next year, they will activate that feature. So you could have it standalone, <clears throat> correct? Do that, those features if not. But so the reason you want workouts is that's part of the input data f- to why did I sleep or not sleep? Did I work out? Right. So the there are three main um, measurements that it makes or calculates for you based on all the data it's pulling off of the ring. Uh, the first is activity. And okay. so that's very similar to what you get out of the Apple Watch. Uh, a little bit different, but steps and, you know, how so long. So it does, it does now measure steps? Yes. It still okay. gives you quite a lot of information. What it's not doing is it's not giving you the heart rate okay. uh, when you're working out. I wonder if it can pull heart rate well from a ring. It's supposed to yes. in, in the next, or as the as the software iterates? Yeah, I think it's actually the back-end software for some reason. Hmm. Um, the other thing that it doesn't right, do right now is it doesn't provide you with your uh, blood oxygen level, even though okay. it has a sensor for that. And that's supposed to be active in the first quarter of next year as well. Okay. Well, it sounds like you get a fair amount of information from the company, like they're they're keeping people up to date on, I mean, maybe everybody's not happy that everything <laughs> isn't available yet, but they're telling you this is our timeline and what we're going to do. I think they've been communicating pretty well. Um, my understanding before, when I did a little bit of research before I bought the ring, um, is the, the, the second generation ring was still considered to be pretty successful. Um, it was one of Time Magazine's 100 Greatest Inventions of 2020. Really? Yeah, so they got a lot of press, and they've been, I guess, doing pretty well as a company. However, there were things like the durability. There were some issues, I think, between the connection between the app and the ring. Um, there were some firmware issue updates, uh, uh, firmware update issues where okay. uh, you could brick the the ring. I guess <laughs> that um, would be a bad thing for a three hundred dollar ring. Exactly. So I think they've done a lot to try and remedy all of that. But one thing that I will say that is a, an issue right this moment is that clearly they did not anticipate the 
uh, popularity and demand for this ring. Oh, no. And so right now, uh, communications with the company has been really slow. A lot of people are upset. Um, some of the deliveries have been delayed, and they, they are having trouble getting through, and I think it's simply because they're swamped. Yeah. You know, it's so hard to keep in mind that everything is a mess right now, but but I think part of the, our reality is not realizing what single thing is going to be a mess. Like, <laughs> I couldn't find crayons. It's like, how wait, crayons for crying? And, you know, I started getting all mad, and I'm like, okay, well, apparently they're on a container ship somewhere. Exactly. You know, or or yep. apparently, you know, they could likely have staffing problems as well. It seems like it's more likely that right now they have staffing problems. They're still a pretty small company, I believe. Um, but whatever it is, um, you know, they, they appear to be working hard to try and remedy that, but it, it doesn't sound as though they expected to have this many sales this quickly. Okay. Uh, the other thing that I need to bring up, though, is that that's also a big deal, especially with users that had the Generation 2 ring, is that for the Generation 3 ring, they've gone to a subscription model. Oh, okay. And so when you buy the ring, uh, I will get six months free of the back-end processing. Okay. After that, it's five ninety nine a month. Oof. Now, on top of a three hundred dollar ring, correct? Okay, and that has obviously stirred emotions on the <laughs> internet and other places. Um, however, I, I did ascertain that even without paying that, you still get some of the basic information out of the app. It's not like it bricks the app or anything. Okay, so you'll still get your activity number, you'll get your readiness number, and you'll get your sleep number. Those are the three measurements. Oh, okay. Um, but you won't get a lot of the underlying detailed data. And and it's okay. not clear to me yet how much of Which that you... Which is in and out. Right. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's something that, um, you know, when the time comes, I'll have had a long period of time to determine how valuable that data is. Right, uh, right. For, for me, I will say I understand this is a luxury for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And if I decided to go forward with it, I mean, I'd understand that, you know, okay, it's going to be six bucks a month. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that, that does definitely give me pause. Back to, you said there's three numbers. Activity, I think I understand that. Sleep, I assume it's like you were you were laying down for nine hours, but you only slept for four. That would be a bad number. <laughs> yeah, it's actually lines. a little more involved than that. And I, I really appreciate the detail that they get. It can sense when I actually kind of got into bed. Mm-hmm. Versus when I fell asleep okay. versus when I woke up versus when I got out of bed. So you kind of have four okay. different times that are logged. And then in there, it's checking your body temperature, your respiration, and your heartbeat Ooh. all through the night. Oh, wow. And so it's taking multiple measurements, and it's also through the accelerometer checking your movement. So you're flopping around left side, right side, left side. Restless leg sleep. syndrome, yeah. whatever, right? Well, and it might so, be restless hand syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> right. Put on your toes for that and see how that works. And so what it does is it provides you with um, this graph that shows you not only the total time you slept, but how much of it you were in REM sleep, how much of it you were in Ooh. what's considered to be light sleep, and how much of it you were considered to be in deep sleep, as well as a little graph that shows you your movement during the entire time. Okay. Does it give you an idea of what's good? It does. Then it calculates a number. All three of those values, activity, readiness, and sleep, are all calculated on a zero to 100 scale. And okay. it gives you that number every day. And 100 would be a good day? 
Perfect. <laughs> okay. Right. So what is readiness? So readiness is interesting because readiness, you're supposed to check that value at the beginning of the day when you get up. Mm-hmm. And that takes into account uh, your recovery from previous days, exercise, how well you slept. So it's kind of a, a product of the other two values. Oh, and And what it's supposed to do is tell you, okay, if you want to go out and run a marathon today, go ahead, you're at 95. Mm-hmm. Or... You know, you, you really should just <laughs> go back to bed. <laughs> uh, can you use that to, like, I don't want to go to work today? Because, like, you know, my readiness number is a 23. I'm just, I'm just going back to bed. You know? It's an interesting concept because, um, you know, it is something that I, I do uh, different kinds of activities. I do some tennis. I do some occasional running, some jogging, some, you know, walking. A lot of walking. And a lot of walking. And, I, I do keep that in mind. I mean, I'm I'm 60 years old now, and I try and keep in mind that you know my body isn't always going to be responsive. And so this uh, this idea of a readiness number, you know, it it's interesting. I'm I'm going to keep tracking it. You know, that's funny. I I'm not looking for more excuses to not go for a run today. <laughs> you know, I'm real good at going. You know. It dipped below 70 this morning. I don't think we're going to the, I'm going to go to the beach and go for a run. You know, there might be a, a thick fog. I think I'll stay in bed. <laughs> well, it's an interesting concept. And uh, like the other thing I should mention is that I've had it about a week and they mentioned that <clears throat> it's going to take a couple of weeks for the entire uh, ecosystem here to calibrate to me specifically. Oh. And so uh, there's a convergence where you, continue to get better and better accuracy over the two weeks. And then I believe that uh, certain other functions may actually be unlocked once they feel that you're within a certain range of accuracy. Oh, interesting. So it's not the end of the road for me right now. I still have another week to see what else is going to happen. Right, right. And, And then six months before you decide whether it's worth an extra six bucks a month? Exactly. And people will say, but isn't your health worth it, Ron? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, considering probably uh, how many things I do for my health, which is probably not as many as I should be doing. uh, (laughs) Maybe it is affordable. (laughs) Six uh, six bucks a month is probably something I should look into. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ron. Well, this this has been fantastic. I love, uh, Ron did do a a great um, write-up of all of the things he's been talking about. And he gave us some pictures of the graphs and stuff that the Aura Ring comes out with. And, uh, what the website is aura.com o u r a yeah i should mention it's not aura like your aura a u r a it's o u r a and the website is actually auraring.com all or- one word okay and i'll make sure we have a link in the show notes john nasanut the link in the show notes will be a link to a blog post, just so you know. And I will I will add that their website is actually very well done and ordering was a breeze. So All right, very cool. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Ron. Thanks, Allison. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know that you can email me directly at allison at podfeet.com and I'll actually write back to almost everybody. And you can do that anytime you like. I would enjoy hearing from you. If you have a question or a suggestion, just send it on over. 
Now, I'm not on Facebook anymore, so if you want to follow me online in general, Twitter's a good place, at Podfeet. Uh, but better yet, why don't you join our Slack community? I've mentioned it a couple of times. It's at podfeet.com slash Slack. It's wide open. You can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. People have been flocking in there lately. It's been, it's been so much fun. It's chatty, but not too chatty. You know, it's just kind of that sweet, kind of medium-sized uh, pace there. And um, you also get to ch- chat with Bard in there if you can catch his attention, sometimes in the Programming by Stealth uh, channel. Anyway, remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show at podfeed.com slash Patreon, or you can do a one-time donation at podfeed.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nosilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.